Prost. 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 All right. Welcome to the Angry Historians. We are here today to talk about the opioid crisis in America and the history thereof. We, we as in all of us, both us here and you that are listening, have all been affected by the opioid crisis at some point, likely in the last decade. So we are going to talk about a few questions, use a few sources, and go from there. So our first talking point question is, uh, what do you think is a viable solution to the opioid crisis? What history points to this solution and do we think that this is the biggest issue facing our generation today ready and go brendan dibs ah i called it yeah good job so based off a lot of research that i had done depending on when in america you really want to start with but it seems like legislation is your honestly our best bet for now legislation to do what first off better regulate the pharmaceutical market Okay. Yeah, make it make it a little harder for people to get these drugs and make it easier yeah. for them to get the help they need to get yeah. off of them. And I, I feel like it's too. a little inappropriate to go to doctors and say it's their fault because they're trained well enough to know the junkie who just wants a fix mm. versus, um, let me finish, Okay. the obvious junkie who's looking for a fix. And then there's another people, because doctors say all the time, like, there's no way for me to tell how much pain you actually are in or aren't. They're trained to see some signs, but the signs have changed recently. The stereotypical junkie has changed drastically. Now your typical drug user is a suburban mom. I would disagree. It's not, I'm, I'm, well, well, you're wrong. But it can be a suburban mom. No, it is. Like, that's fact. Okay. <clears throat> They're going into the medicine cabinet and taking oxys and vikes and uh, stuff like that. They're leftover drugs. If they're not quite on the heroin kick, or they are close to it, but it's not your homeless person on the street asking you for pills. The majority of people who consume a lot of painkillers and become addicted are pretty much stay-at-home moms. Or stay-at-home parents. I would disagree. Okay. So I disagree with your claim that Amy is wrong. And I also disagree, disagree with your claim that it's a middle-aged a suburban housewife. When it in fact is a quote by The Verge and also the American Center for Disease Control states that it's women in their mid-20s, white women in their mid-20s who are in the suburbs, but it doesn't mention motherhood or housewife or anything like that. And I think that that's you extrapolating data that is in, in line with you're overestimating what that means. You know, younger people, because it states the average age is 23, and I wouldn't call that a suburban housewife. I would call that a young, un, uh, just out of college suburban teen grew the, the pills that they probably got at college and now is looking for a cheap fix. And since they're in the suburbs and money is more fluent there, they can get into the harder drug. I think that you extrapolating that that's a housewife thing is a little over the top, considering that the articles in from the CDC and drugabuse.gov and Vox and specifically in regards to the ASAM facts and figures, it states that heroin deaths among women have tripled in the last few years from 2010 to 2013. Female heroin overdoses increased from 0.4 to 1.2 per 100,000 people. Women are more likely to have chronic pain, so that's why they prescribed the painkillers in the first place. And 48,000 women died of prescription pain reliever overdoses between 99 and 2010. Then this has nothing about their marital status, and I think you jumping to that conclusion is kind of irresponsible. And I don't think it's a great fit for this type of topic. So, my, here, 
here's my take on the history of this and how it got started. So our first opioid epidemic was post-Civil War. I disagree. That there is evidence to back up my claim. There's evidence on my end to dispute here. That it was the first opioid epidemic was post-Civil War. So, soldiers' disease, as they call it. Yeah, no, I saw saw a lot of that, like uh, soldiers' disease and uh, their need for morphine. morphine. At that time, that was a new thing for them. And it was as addictive then as it is now. But you have... But I think I'm defining opioids a little different. Okay, so opioids we are defining as heroin, specifically. I think you should... Fentanyl, morphine, yep. oxycodone. Anything that... I think you should define more the effects of the drug versus the name of the drug. No, we are talking yeah. about opioids. But, but I'm talking right. about opioids that go under different names that we don't use anymore. Like, you keep going while so, I look for the exact... Point. I will. So, in the 1980s and 1990s, there was a big push to doctors to say um, opioids are not addictive. And there are a few articles that we have here. One of the articles that I saw pushes a big divide between Europe and the United States in the between 95 and 2000 where oxycodone consumption in the United States skyrocketed. Whereas before that, from 1980 on to about 1997, let's call it, Mm -hmm. uh, it was pretty flat. It was a very flat line. It was similar to Europe. It was still a little higher, obviously, because we were more prescribed that. But then after that date, I have a massive skyrocket up to current where Sorry. you have a... I missed that. 1997 okay. is the, the big jump from... Yeah. I, um, I that was what I found a modern time comp with Europe specifically because they have well, a lot less issues with opioids than we yeah. do as far as prescriptions and consumption. And that's based on milligrams per capita. We are up over 250 and they are stuck around 10. Okay. So in the... What was your, um, my point was uh, an well, article I, I'm from... I'm just curious as to what your earliest year that you found as far as drugs that... I mean, we have Teddy Roosevelt in 1901. Wait. Yes. Okay. But, but it was even before that. No, so. I know that, but I just know that that was one of the ones I found. So, too. one of the articles from the Washington Post that I found titled From Teddy Roosevelt to Trump How Drug Companies Triggered an Opioid Crisis a Century too. Ago. So, 1908, uh, Teddy Roosevelt appointed Hamilton Wright to be mm-hmm. the nation's first opium commissioner. And <clears throat> it seems that Wright understood that this is. This was an issue in 1908, more than 100 years ago, 110 yeah. years ago now. So the current, it, it, this article goes on to say that the current opioid abuse crisis is more lethal with a record number of failed overdose, overdoses, public health experts note. So one of the issues with that, so morphine was invented in the 1820s, mm-hmm. and then the hypodermic needle came after that. And 1898 Bear Company. No, that's that was dr- that's that's heroin. Yes, and that was injected. Heroin was invented as a less remedy, costly, effective, not not less costly, sure. less addictive. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> right, and it was to be amplified by injection. Yes, because yeah, another advent of the hypodermic needle made it that much better. But I wish to refute you to your claims. Go for it. <clears throat> the one article I found from where. The Strange History of Opiates in America from Morphine for Kids to Heroin for Soldiers. Okay. States that America's problem with opiates as a tragedy became a thing Mm. and stretches back to the arrival of the Mayflower in 1620. I also was like, what the fuck? (laughs) 
But it's describing this other drug called laudanum, which is yes. which derives from the o- from the opium poppy. Yes, and um, like other opiates, laudanum is derived from the opium poppy, the joy plant, as the Sumerians called it five thousand years ago. So right from there, we know this is right. not a new problem all over the world. Oh gosh, no! And like all opiates, it was an effective painkiller, an antidiarrheal, and sephora. In the rough frontier of early. Fr- of early America, opiates helped ease the pain brought on by such ailments as smallpox, cholera, and dysentery. It went on to become a, like such a big, huge thing in the United States that Thomas Jefferson became a heavy user of it, so much so that he grew the plant on Monticello. Really? Yes. There you go. And it was like he turned he, Thomas Jefferson. He was very skeptical of the treatments of his day. Turned to laudanum in his later years to help ease his chronic diarrhea and affliction that an affliction that probably killed him. And not the addiction, but like yeah, the it didn't help. <laughs> so <clears throat> a few of these articles. Uh, this one from the Washington Post continues that. So it was an issue from long ago. There was the opium wars in the 1840s and 50s. No, not, like even. But like, it was all part of the same yeah. trade. <clears throat> the fact that and it was all as addictive the as the East else. India Company started an entire <laughs> war the over opium, wars, opium yes. which has a surprising history to our native Boston, our beloved Boston. So Home of the Boston Red Sox. Why don't you tell us about Perkins? This is a two-part article by NPR. Thomas Handison Perkins. He was a merchant in Boston and had for over 40 years dealt opium in China. And uh, the article pretty much goes on to say that he traded tea with the Chinese for their opium, brought it back to the United States because it was 100% legal, not a big thing for them. And he became a very (laughs) wealthy man. And he was not the only one. There was a very, very large group of people that were had making Boku bucks off the opium deal. And illegal opium in China. Legal in US. Fun fact. Right. China's like, well, hey, this is probably not good for people. Let's not do this. And, and it decimated the population in China far before it decimated the population <clears throat> here. Yes. And one of the professors from our alma mater, Dan, uh, Dane Morrison, said that paraphrasing a little bit but the money that people like Perkins got from opium truly changed Boston and I'm sure other cities like it but how did it change it they got so much wealth and created such legacies that they were able to bring the goods into Faneuil Hall and Quincy Market and help fund Massachusetts police fire departments, roads, bridges, the courthouse, and schools. They were able to create a society that they might otherwise not have been able to. Like Mass General, one of the the greatest hospitals probably in the country, it's definitely the in the world. state, came to be in part, not solely, but in part because of opium profits. And like, I don't know, my mind just boggled by this fact. So here's the question then, was it worth it? Was it worth it that now we have Mass General, we have all McLean of the Hospital, Boston Athenaeum, university buildings, high schools, and public libraries. They all have these people engraved on their founding plaques mm-hmm. whose money came from opium. It's like the Kennedys. So was it worth it? That's the question. That is the question. What do you think, Steve? Do you think it was You've worth it? You've been awfully quiet. Yes, you have. Which is very untypical of conservative Steve. I would say it is. It is. It was worth it in some ways. Okay. I think laudanum back then. 
Yeah, I think laudanum is one of the things. I mean, it was mixed with alcohol. That's how it usually was administered. <clears throat> and then to push it onto opium, I think that if you look at the source of income in this country in that time period, opium was probably not the worst thing in the world. And it went to a much greater cause than someone's personal wealth outright. And I think that that's something that we lack now. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that Mass General being the, the hospital that it is and that these other foundations and associations that were formed, you know, the state police, yeah. fire department, schools, these are all things that you can use to keep people off of opium. They can, they can educate people and use their resources properly, whereas when you privately hold all the wealth from these kind of deals, you don't do that. Yeah. So I'd cough, say... Cough, in, big pharma, cough, well, cough. Well, what I would say... Well, hit later, but... What I would say yeah. then, too, is that you have to... It's double... It's it. This kind of stuff is always a double-edged sword. I mean, if yeah. you look at the founding of this country, it's always... There's always a dark side to stuff that we've come across. Like, mm-hmm. one question that... Like, the might... moon landing was basically done by Nazi oh, scientists. So, like, like... Yeah, and, like, one thing, like, I'd like to... <laughs> so, I mean, come on. For I mean, the later, like... is, like, the United States' success as a country and its early origins on the back of slavery. How important right. that was to our country. And... But that's, like, the big thing. Like, does the ends outweigh the means and we're going to dive into this question as far as it goes to opioids in a few minutes but one thing that I found with this research is the legacy that these opium barons had in the Boston area a lot of um, the research that I've seen says they don't like to talk about it today there are some institutions that fully grasp what where they came from it's not their big seller but it's they're not hiding away from it but it's the people who still have that money today who ended up getting people of the United States, Boston, and China addicted to this drug. Mm. They do not like to go and acknowledge that path. So uh, if they do acknowledge that past, I guess my question is, what benefit is there today from acknowledging that past? Do you think, and I don't think that there isn't. I, th- I, I think I it's just more think just that... being aware of the, your own past. Like, they know, but it's like, like one of the articles, they said uh, the great-grandmother of like, one family liked to pretend that that's not where the money came from mm. but the great grandchildren knew and they were like so grandma how about that opium <laughs> and she was like shut the fuck up <laughs> what's the psyche behind that like i don't i don't i just don't understand it's not a question and not research we did but i i mean i i part of me <laughs> thinks that if we admit that we were part of the problem in the first place then we can't be part of the solution is the mentality it's a good, t- it's a good point so, but I don't think that's the truth. I think it, it, it's the opposite. I think if we acknowledge that our history, at, at least in part as Americans, is based on yeah. the trade of opium. Like we, we then come from a we, very bloody past. Like oh, certainly. I mean, in so many aspects. If we acknowledge our sins in the past, maybe we can atone for them in the future. Maybe, but I think that as a society, we are we are loath to... Repeat it? To, no, to acknowledge it in the first place because if we acknowledge it then it makes it somehow quote-unquote our fault which it is it's not the case it, these are people that lived 200 250 300 years ago their sins are not our sins no. so to speak and <clears throat> so but if we all just if we put it out in the open to say yes this was part of our history and yes we got good things out of it like mgh or Ma- master General hospital or yeah. any of these <clears throat> programs the, the boston athenaeum and so on and so forth if we say yes this came from drug money essentially and then 
say, and now we are going to atone for those sins in a way by helping people to recover from the continuing opioid crisis in the United States, then I think we can actually move forward somehow some in in a certain way i guess i would say yeah i think that is a good response to the question because there's no definitive answer to it it's no. very muddled waters because it's really it's a double-edged sword catch 22 however Lots cliche way you want to describe yeah. it well i mean it, so you, you brought up the slavery thing and it's like because we can't even most people can't even agree on the fact that the arabs started it it's always the east the western european problem it's i'm going with it it's definitely the ottomans who started it. No, in the Americas. Well, they still started. No, no, but they still started oh, the whole thing, and okay. and it also doesn't go down the road of how you know a lot of people that were in slavery, their own ancestors, sold them out because what does it get you? Right. What problem does that solve? But and so we to look at it, on it too. To look well, at it, start it. To to, it. to look at, and that's exactly what could happen Maybe if that's what it is. They, uh, if we acknowledge right. this issue with the opioids from back then. Is now I was like, well, it's your fault. So you're gonna blame MGH? You're gonna blame the people that founded no, MGH? Like, we can blame like oh, but see the point is, is why do you we have to blame? We can blame the Perkins uh, descendants. But what is the point of blaming? There is none, and, and I think that's like blaming that. fifteen years old Germans for the Holocaust. That's ridiculous. Right. We are blaming Germans today for the Holocaust. No, no, no. 15-year-old Germans. All the old-ass motherfuckers can take their blame I'm all they want. Germans our age today... Okay. Yeah, our age today, no. No. It's like, Remember? When we I, 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 I'm, that's why I said the old people. Yeah, they let's, can take let's it. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, like we can't go down that rabbit hole. It's not a rabbit hole, but it's, no, this but, is the point. No. This is what you're yeah, talking about. Right. These, the you, no, if you go down the road of blaming an entire civilization or city or country based on bad things that happened, then we're never going to get past anything. Right. Because so everybody did something saying, bad to everybody because that's how the human race is. Right. And so that's what I'm saying is that if we... we as a society, we as Bostonians, we as so that's why well, if you up. neither are you, you're all Linite. So that's but that's what <laughs> I, I but that to get back to I'm Bostonian to okay. get back to the you point about why technically I'm German in that case about why the <laughs> the people would be shameful or whatever or they want to admit to the why their wealth is tied up to it is because what possible good does it do you to become the well, the, the, the responsible feel responsible for solving the problem too? I but it's think. not about that. It's a, do you want to take the venom? Do you want to take the hate mail, the email, the mm. crap? Because what the hell is the point of that? You're not. There's no. There's no good that's going to come from that. I would agree. So there's no point in acknowledging that. Two hundred and fifty well, years ago, your ancestors made a ton of money. The only point I would say in acknowledging it is that You're, by acknowledging it, then you can move forward. Because I feel yeah. like that's part of the reason that things haven't moved forward as, as a society to help the people that are afflicted yeah. by opioid addiction And you're addiction doing a today. disservice to yourself and to the people out there that I feel today could use your money to help them. And I don't know whether or not these people do or do not donate to help people with this stuff. I really don't know. That wasn't the point oh, of our project. Just... We didn't want to do that research. But, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not what we're trying to figure out here. What we're trying to figure out right now is whether acknowledging your family's disservice, well, not disservice. Uh, well, it wasn't you know, a disservice at the that, time. But it, it, yeah, because, I mean, I, I, a lot of good came from it. And the ends justify the means, yes. And yes. Because then, well, then also this drug led to things like morphine. Right. And it led to the hyperdermic needle. Right. 
And well, I mean, I mean, the, the I mean, needle, the hypodermic needle came to its own thing, but yeah. like, you can't. I, I, I find it hard to believe that, like, oh, we could really use another, a faster means to inject there drugs, really not just this, these drugs, but any drugs, anything yeah. into the human body. Mm-hmm. With and then, if you think about, if you've ever seen any Band of Brothers episode, every episode has like nineteen guys getting. St- dick with morphine in every episode. Just like, ah, morphine! Okay. You got morphine? I got all the morphine. Okay, okay. so... Jake's cup. We talked about the ends justifying the means... In the past. 200 years ago. But let's talk about today. To- yes, so a, a, a portion of the... Not a lot, but... Like, profits of sales to... Of opioids today, including Vicodin, Oxycontin, all of that goes to research and development. Does the ends justify the means today? So does that money justify research and medications for cancer treatment, drugs for diabetes, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, the whole thing? Because those are big money makers. The United States spends billions of dollars just on cancer drugs and yes. stuff like that alone research and, for yeah and yes. i mean personally i feel like our research in that is a little misguided and it's a topic we talk about later yes. but does the overprescription, the abundance of heroin addiction that starts off with painkillers 99 percent of the time mm-hmm. just the, like should really should we be reliant on that money from those prescription drugs that get abused time and time and again to do R&D. Research and development. Yes. Because it's a big thing that politicians are going after, specifically Bernie Sanders. He's not necessarily going after that money for bad purposes, but he is... One of the things is like they make... Their profits are ridiculous and they make little money for R&D. And and drug companies say, oh, we cost so much money because it goes to R&D. So... (laughs) I would say... I would say no. I would say that the the ends do not justify the means in not today. 21st century we America. Make no. More than enough money. There are people with plenty of money. That there are other, there's so many other um, avenues that we that can go it, down that the, to get the this money. The funding could be allocated but for this research and development. Well, yes. I mean, realistically, I would say no because no I mean, what? No, realistically, I would say yes because that we're not. There's no fucking chance in hell we're gonna get the appropriate avenues for that money because we hate the poor and we love the rich in this country. But that's another topic. So my team. Moving forward, Steve. I, I would say no. That the means don't justify the. The ends don't justify the means. Yes. Okay. They don't, it doesn't work that way now because I think there's a lot less of the community building, the hospital. It doesn't work that way now. It goes more towards profiteering. Versus right, but it's not. It's not just that. It's it's the we the percentage, like you said with Bernie, the percentages <coughs> are way different as well. I mean, the amount of money that it would have taken to do the things they did with MGH and the police is a lot. It's a it's a higher percentage than what's oh, going they towards. Never do that today. It's a higher percentage than what's going towards research and development. And so, no, I don't think the ends justify the means because it's not being put in the right places and it's not the amount of profiteering or the amount of profit percentage isn't equaling out. There could be more money also and that doesn't necessarily have to go to research or development. It could just go towards making sure the average person has avenues for treatment to the addiction, which is something else that we read in these articles where people that do end up addicted to these pills and or heroin and fentanyl usually don't have private insurance. They have public insurance and they can't go to a private doctor that doesn't accept the insurance to get a referral. Or if you're out of... Well, that's the whole point. That's the whole point. 
But that's what I'm saying, because if you can't get to the care, the proper place to get you into an actual treatment center because you don't have money, well, some of that money, a lot of that money should be going to that. Yeah. To making sure people don't stay addicted to these drugs. Well, I've had surgery enough where I know it's needed. I know I needed those pills. Right. I also didn't get addicted to it because I was. I don't normally have that type of problem, and I don't look down on people that do. But because you're wired differently than them, it's not. That's what I mean. And so I wasn't. What I'm saying is that th- there needs to be more input of inflow of money. An influx of money needs to go towards helping less fortunate people or less people with less quality insurance get to treatment get the treatment they need so they don't go and seek out fentanyl and street heroin and all these other things when their prescription runs out because their doctor basically goes well you're boned because your your insurance doesn't cover another refill or a lesser refill of a lower dosage to help you wean yourself off well i think one thing we should say uh, should say like nobody goes out looking for fentanyl fentanyl is used to cut fentanyl um, is actually heroin. sold as heroin in a cheap yeah. way yeah. so yes they go out looking for fentanyl i mean no they don't go out looking for it they just end up getting that shit i've lost too many friends to accident accidental overdoses to fentanyl when they thought it was coke not that that's any better but it's just it's you're, you're, but it, they go they're looking for this type they're of drug for and drugs and they're getting the stuff that is supposed to be used but it's being it's substituted in for heroin because it's cheaper so yeah and the ultimate kick in the ass is it's like for the most part china's actually the one producing this shit well, yeah. And they're the ones who we fucked over good with the opium, and now yeah. they're fucking us. Not deliberately, but they were getting fucked in the ass back. It's just irony at its fine. So the conclusion for us is this that... question is... No, the ends do not justify the means. Not today. Not like, today. There's a clear difference in the past. Maybe at one point? It, that money... I would say never did, they, uh, did the ends justify the means, because I think it is... I don't know if it does, but that money went, that money went and, to yeah. social good. I understand. And I could saying. understand it more. Yeah, but I think back then for, it really did. Now Today it's going for pri- private profits. That's true. What was the drug czar who was up for a nominee in Trump's cabinet? He helped produce and market painkiller drugs that pe- to people that really didn't need them, mm-hmm. begging their doctors for it, and the doctors can't say shit because their hands are tied behind the back, because how are they going to regulate how much pain you're actually in? Right. I mean, they are trained a bit and to find, ask to tell like who really does and does not need it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when the stereotypical person coming in who does not look like your stereotypical heroin user is looking for drugs... It's completely different. Well, that, and, and that especially definition if they has even changed in the last 15 years. Exactly. Because it's a stereotypical it's, user. And now it's most often than not, based off of my research, it's a stay-at-home person who doesn't work that has access to painkillers at home. My my research has concluded that it, opioids, heroin specifically, is the great equalizer. It does not care who you are, where you came from, what gender you are. It will get you. It will hook you. And it will kill you. And I've had, I graduated high school a dozen years ago, and I've had as many people die from my, just my graduating class that have died from either heroin, fentanyl, combination thereof, or by suicide related to drug issues. Yeah. As far as I understand it. 
So it's it, so I would agree that now it's no, an issue the, now that the is being ends do not justify the means. The beginnings of this epidemic because the United States has gone through like waves of drug addiction. Am I not talking regionally, but we're talking nationally, where it goes through like oh well we passed new legislation so it's helping scale back the drug abuse problem, but then it comes back up and now we're at this huge upswing where all the money is going. It's just like we're driving this as far as it can go so my wallet can get fatter. So And that's what really pisses my, me fucking off. Uh, that's fair. That's why I'm angry. I'm pissed off too. My research, which largely focused on 21st century American opioid addiction, really had a lot to say about the 70s, or sorry, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And one of the points I wanted to bring up is that in the 1990s, drug companies were peddling to doctors, not to users, but to doctors to say that opioids were less addictive than other potential substances. And so they shouldn't be concerned about those drugs becoming addictive, which now we know to not be true. And even the industries that produce these drugs have got, have, redacted their promotions of these drugs, including OxyContin. They have said that they shouldn't have pushed these drugs as non-addictive. And yes, now, so that thing. in the 90s, that's what that started this push. And then we have not been able to go back. So, for example, um, in an article from the PBS NewsHour, William Brangham talks about the opioid industry and talks about how by 2015, according to the CDC, enough pills were being prescribed for every American to be medicated around the clock for three straight weeks. Every American. That's men, women, children. And that's three years ago. Coming up <clears throat> on three years ago. And there's none, of, of course, none of us are, you know, not that proportionate of, of us is addicted. But no. in, and so, and then 2015, even after things were cut back and we became aware of the addiction properties of opioids, in 2015, there were still three times as many opioid prescriptions being written as there were in 1999 when there was this big push for prescribing opioid-based <clears throat> medications, pain medications. And as a result, the people that, the doctors that said, we are no longer going to prescribe this to people said, the, the patients said, fine, I will find it cheaper and elsewhere in the form of heroin. And then even in the last two, three years, there has been a, a push for drug production, drug dealers to cut their product with something that gets you higher. Yeah. And that is fentanyl and carfentanyl, really. And so when we go from where we were to where we are with how many, Steve, you have the number 64 in the last year, the overdose death have killed more than 64,000 Americans. Mm-hmm. That's unacceptable. Right. And <clears throat> so I guess to get to my original question here. So one of the things when you were bringing up the rise and how we've been talking about the rise of fentanyl and the rise of heroin in comparison to your data about painkillers is that until 2013, medical examiners didn't routinely test heroin overdose victims for the presence of fentanyl. And so once they started to, an alarming trend appeared and preliminary data include indicated that in 2016, deaths involving fentanyl surpassed that's involving prescription opioids or heroin. Yeah. And so basically what I what according to the rest of the article, the way it basically goes is people switched to heroin because it was cheaper than uh, prescription opioids and also because there was a sharp rise in the price of prescription opioids. Uh-huh. And that had to do with around 2011 when Which is why they're all switching over when they when they're 
right. no longer right. dealt with their needs. But it's not. But it. But there's only a. There's, according to this article, there's only a kernel of truth in the narrative that people switched from one to the other. Yeah. There's only a kernel of truth. It doesn't mean it's completely true. And so what I would say about that is that if you want to break it down by class, non-Hispanic whites have shot up in heroin use from roughly 30 percent to over 50% of all heroin admissions at the age of 12 and older in the last 12 years. Well, and, and so I'm, I'm looking at this article now. That and this is a CBS you. News opioid addiction epidemic and six charts article is what I'm looking at. And also to go back to your numbers as far as 60,000 people, I mean, that is a massive spike. We weren't floating at that kind of level for a while. And this, this I think, goes to the argument that we're not getting people the treatment they need, you know, between insurance gaps and privatized health system and healthcare and all this stuff has really helped to make the things that we talked about earlier worse where yes back then maybe the ends justify the means because we weren't so worried about privatized healthcare and people had access to a lot more affordable care to get off of these drugs whereas nowadays it's not right. you don't have it it's easier to go out and score heroin than it is to go to your doctor and it's and cheaper and it. that's why these things are happening well and it's also easier or to part score. of it it's also easier to score than it is to get treatment because well that's what even i just if yeah. people are going into um er's they're getting three week waiting periods until they can get treatment right because of the insurance and the, all this money everybody's and so worried about getting paid availability of bed Correct. and so what is someone who wants to get off of heroin right now have you ever this is kind of anecdotal, but you go, I'm going to get up early tomorrow, and I'm going to go to the gym. I do that. And then your ass sleeps in, <laughs> and you do don't that. even think about it for the next three weeks. <laughs> like, like, it's 430, my alarm's going off. Nah. Nah. I'd so rather sleep. How poop. can you expect somebody who is afflicted with the disease, let's call it a disease of addiction, to say, I need treatment, and I need treatment now, for them to say, but I'll wait three weeks and withdraw? Yeah. Are you kidding? <laughs> like, and it just doesn't happen. It's just not going to happen. Right. If, and, and I don't think we as a society should expect it to happen in such a way. No. I do know that there are a few police forces, police uh, departments out there, um, beginning, as far as I understand it, in Gloucester, that is not far from any of us. And in Gloucester, they implemented a program where if you are an opioid slash heroin user, whatever you want to call it, and you wanted to get into treatment, you could go straight into the police station with your gear, whatever you've got. They Gloucester. would not... Yeah, exactly. That's what you just said. So Gloucester started that, and you can go in and, and say, I need treatment now. And they would not charge you, so it would not be part of your permanent record for having heroin on you. You turn it in, you turn in your hypodermic needles, and they get you into a treatment program immediately. And that has been a huge success. So that is what we should be doing on a much, much larger scale. Does it need to be on a federal scale? No, but I do think that more towns that are afflicted with heroin problems need to be implementing. I think that's one of the, well, and to go back to my question, what do you think is a, a viable solution to this opioid crisis? I think it starts small. It does not start on a grandiose federal scale. It starts with police departments saying, we're gonna do something about this. So if you look at, you look back at the war on drugs in Reagan era, you know, with all the best intentions, I, I do believe it failed. We lost the war on drugs. We need to do something different. And to cling to a 
20, 30, 40 year old past of this is how we used to deal with it is not viable. So, obviously, because it didn't fucking work. So, <laughs> so there's a, so, there's a, for example, I found in the research uh, mm. in Portugal, it used to be the highest per capita in Europe uh, use of heroin. Mm. Uh, 1% or 100,000 Portuguese uh, reported addiction to hard drugs. Basically, their solution in Lisbon, the capital, it was the culprit was heroin and fentanyl. Their, re- their revolutionary idea was to decriminalize totally. And so what happens is they have had their number of addicts halved and overdose deaths have dropped to just 30 a year from the entire country. Wow. Also, they have started started to do what's called like they call it like a gym it's like a gym therapy they they have these like aa style sessions in a gymnasium where they exercise together and they're all addicts and former addicts that all get together to keep themselves support they usually a publicly funded facility that treats more than 4,000 addicts free of charge. That's the other thing. All of this stuff isn't costing the individual any money out of pocket. Now, yes, it isn't a subsidized government package, but it works. I mean, you're talking about they went from having, you know, 100,000 people that admitted to being addicted to hard drugs and over 20,000 deaths to 30 for the entire country. And, you know, 90% of public money spent fighting drugs is channeled towards healthcare goals. 10% 10% is spent on police enforcement. So basically, 90% of all funding that is taken in for these programs actually spent on the people that need the help. Whereas in the United States, it's usually the it's the 90% would be spent on drug law enforcement and the, ten, and the 10% would be spent on possible clinics and things of that nature. So to support that in the U.S., Vox.com published an article on December 21st, 2017 that gave four big solutions to... And, and they were building blocks to solutions on this problem. So one was that we prevent new generations of opioid users via not prescribing opioids in the first place, though, mm. so on and so forth, different pain management options. Number two, make addiction treatment easier to access than opioid painkillers and heroin. That's, again, that goes back to our point of saying when people say, I need help and I need help now, you give it to them now, not three weeks from now. Three was that if we can't stop people from doing drugs, we can make it less dangerous. And one of the points that they they brought up was, and I'm quoting here, researchers credit the European, European prescription heroin programs with better health outcomes, reductions in drug-related crimes, and improvements in social functioning, such as stabilized housing and employment. So not only does the cost of treating people on a state level, on a federal level, outweigh, it, it, it benefits in so many ways because there are people that are not in jail. There are people who are not having their houses broken into in order to fund their addiction there are and then these people are going out into the world and even though they may be addicted to opioids they are functioning members of a society they are working on our cars they are working in our grocery stores they are working to dig our ditches as we say in my family and the, and the ditches need to be dug so <clears throat> and furthermore with that point naxalone which also is known as narcan yep, being narcan. available free of charge to everyone, not just users, but families, teachers, doctors, firefighters, EMTs, the li- anyone who wants to get a dose of Noxalone or Narcan should be able to get it. And sure. then finally is the need to address the other problems that led to addiction. Um, and there was a study done called the Rat Park where there were rats that were socially isolated and they were given water that had drugs in it mm-hmm. or 
water with no drugs. And the, then there was other rats that were in societal groups and were happy. They played. They did all the things that rats like to do. I'm not entirely sure. What, make pasta. I don't fucking know. But the the rats that were, and rats aren't people, I'm aware, the rats that were socially happy were given the same option of the water with the drugs or the water without the drugs. And, uh, opioid-based drugs, mind you. And they chose the non-laced water as they were happier. So that definitely contributes to this issue well, and I mean, can contribute a, to the solution. <clears throat> there's also, you know, the study Vox was talking about where it's also about prescribing. I mean, in Europe, specifically Germany is the country that consumes the most opioids in Europe, prescribes pills, particularly pain killers at half the rate of the United States. And also, you can't just go, they don't get prescribed by a primary care physician. You have to go to a specialist to get them. Whereas in the United States, it's kind of the other way around. Japan also is very skeptical of regular opioid, regular opioid prescriptions. So they say that, I mean, this basically points to the fact that these other countries and, and areas are much more in tune to the fact that opioids are addictive and they're also much more regulated, which is one of the things that was stated too, is Europe is much more regulated when it comes to drugs than the U.S., prescription drugs. And this is why it's harder for people to get the prescriptions. And it also helps in downplaying the ability for people to get addicted because that's harder to get the drug. That's one of the big things Vox was pointing out. Right. Particularly when it has to do with Japan, whereas, you know, Japanese doctors were slightly more willing to prescribe opioids for chronic pain, about 64% versus 91% of U.S. doctors. And about 50% of the 461 Japanese doctors surveyed said they prescribed opioids for patients with acute pain versus 97% of 198 American doctors. Oh so basically, I mean, it comes down to the it fact that... It's a cultural thing, too, then. Well, right, but a lot of it has to do with regulation. We, mm. The U.S. is not as regulated in painkillers, and I think that happens, that has a bigger effect, and also the, the the fact that we treat it as an economic situation, whereas Europe doesn't quite do that. It's not an industry as much as it is in the United States, and same with Japan, and that's part of the reason that they're not prescribing more expensive and harder drugs. You know, okay, so 4% of the world's population lives in the U.S., but it accounts for over 27% of world's drug overdose deaths. That's insane. I mean, it's 0.4% of 507 million people. Here's another stat. Of of 507 million people living in the EU proper, 1.3 million, or 0.4%, were considered high risk. 0.4. Whereas when the federal government estimated 8.5 million Americans misused opiates in 2015. So you're talking about over five times the amount in, actually six times the amount in a smaller sample size. It's it's just fucking wild. Uh, I, 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 no, I know. I, but this is the problem. This And a lot of this is going to stem out, and we're not going to touch on in this on this episode because we didn't research it, but it, it's the for-profit health system. No, because this is that honestly is a, a topic that we could keep talking about. But I mean, this over is... Over and over again. But this is, but this is part of it. I mean, most of the EU has state-sponsored single-payer health care, and it's had it for a long time. The United States doesn't have any of that. It's a business, and a lot of that has to do with this. And Japan is the same way. It is not a state-sponsored drug-pumping society, and you can tell by the way they treat things. Well, and this here's, is... a, here's a bone to pick. Why the fuck are we advertising for drugs? Well, that's Every the big thing, time. too. It's like... us and, I think, France, France is the only right. other country that does that. that uh, and it's <sighs> fucking... Stupid because people go into the doctor's office saying, Oh, I, I, I have this thing. And they're like, You have a cold, asshole. 
you do not have toe cancer. Now, go away. To play devil's advocate about single payer, Canada is having a high problem with addiction, and they are single payer. Yes. But they also have a large addiction problem. Some of that could stem from the fact that it's still just not as regulated as Europe because they have less regulations on their drugs as well. No, and, and I think it would be a disservice to the United States for us to just adopt another country's, any uh, other country's system, but like, we can create our own. Sure. But it also would be a disservice to us to not look, say, like, what works for Canada? All right, this is what works for Canada. Well, why, we can, why can't it work here? We could and then we can, like, you know, like, sources. it's not an overnight yes. fix. This is, this is going to take a while. Well, we, we pull look how long it took Obamacare to get its act together, kind <laughs> of. True. Kind of. Uh, so. And then, like, other countries in the world, like, Germany has a very good system. Right, and we know Germany. But it's also different for a long cultures time. and stuff like that. But I don't know. I'm just going to go on to a different rant, so I think I'm going to digress on this one. Okay. So our final question here is Steve. It comes from Steve. So he said, why does it seem like this story about the opioid crisis is an, isn't as in your face, quote, in your face, as it should be? There have been 64,000 deaths in 2016 alone, which is more than the total lives lost in the entirety of the Vietnam War. It seems like a non-factor of a story. There are a few discussions, and when there are, there's a lot less time dedicated to the story. If this was a list of casualties from a war, then it would be covered in an entirely different way. Why is it is that, and what should we do about it? If this trend continues, we are projected to lose 500,000 in the next decade, which is more than the U.S. casualties in World War II, which totaled 418,000 people. So, Steve, tell us about that. So, when I was looking up research for stuff and I found this this stat line, I was kind of drawn back from it because I didn't realize that it was that high. I mean, and that's that's part of the problem. Is, is I mean, you know, I, I watch the news pretty often. I have seen the story fairly often, but it's always a blurb. It's always a quick thing. It's always, oh, Boston is still having problems with opiates, or, oh, New Hampshire is having problems with heroin in Manchester, or blah, 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 and it's a quick little blurb, news at 11. That's literally what it is, and they'll say the thing, and it'll be one quick little blurb about some teenage girl or some middle-aged guy in the middle of the street was found, and he got back, or they got to the hospital, we just revive with Narcan, and that's it. And it's over. And the story's over. And then... I feel like it's always a sl- like on a slow news day, too. That's a fair point. And then that's the other thing. Is so, But yet, you're talking about 64,000 people in a year, which is more than the Vietnam War total. It, that's just insane. I mean, if we had 64,000 people die overseas in, in any sort of service to the country, you'd be hearing about it. I mean, people made a huge deal about the amount lost in Vietnam, and by comparison to World War II, it's much smaller. People complain... Complain is the wrong word. People point out all the people that have died overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan, which is even infinitely smaller than that. It's, I think, 5,000 total between the two wars. And yet, for something that's an addiction issue, is that why? Is it because it's an addiction and addiction's still a dirty word? Is that why we're having problems with this being on the news right or covered right or brought enough to our attention where we're actively trying to resolve the issue because this is insane. I mean, you can't, you know, the stat article that I found, they've been rising sharply for the last seven years. Drug drug overdoses already kill more Americans under the age of 50 than anything else. Anything else. That line alone is crazy. And according to that CBS article that I found in relation to Vietnam, 
Here's the other thing. The report also showed the year 64,000 drug fatalities outnumbered the 35,000 motor vehicle deaths in 2015. Age-related deaths in the worst years of the AIDS crisis when 50,000 people died in 1995. The peak year for homicides in the U.S. in 1991, 24,000 people were murdered. Suicides, which have been rising in the U.S. for nearly 30 years, totaled 44,000 in the same time period. Mm -hmm. This is killing people at a higher rate than suicide, than active homicide, than AIDS, than AIDS, which is like the biggest, worst disease you can possibly contract because there's no cure for it. So one of the things that is part of the argument that you hear and that I do not agree with, but you hear is that this is uh, Darwin's theory in action that Oh, the Darwin Award crap? No, no, the survival of the fittest. So um, this particular article... But then why don't they... Let let those lost souls pay the price of their criminal choices and criminal actions. But why don't they feel that way about suicides? Society does not owe them multiple medical resuscitations from their own bad judgment, criminal activity, and self-inflicted wounds. And Missouri State Senator Rob Schaff uh, once remarked that when people die of overdoses, that it just... quote, just removes them from the gene pool. So I think that part of the reason that we are not having this discussion so often as as we should be is because of the stigma that you said, Brendan, right. of this attitude that because it is not viewed as an disease, as, as it should be, as it is, where it's viewed as a self-inflicted wound, such as the statistics for suicide or... But yet the people that get... Driving... But the statistics for suicide... Suicides still suicides don't create this kind of fervor. Not unless you're highly religious and you just think that they're going to hell. It doesn't really create this public fervor, whereas the stigma around drugs does. Right. And you know, another statistic that I found in this article is fentanyl specifically is fifty to one hundred times stronger than morphine. And of the identified deaths in twenty sixteen, fifteen thousand four hundred and change were from heroin. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, 20,140 20, were from fentanyl or other mm-hmm. synthetics, which shows you that this the cheaper, quicker, dangerous. more powerful are more dangerous. Mm-hmm. And they're also easier to get, obviously, because it's starting to overtake the actual pure drugs. Well, um, and I, would, I think it would be safe to say and important to say for us and for the people that are listening to this to say do you or someone you know i don't know anybody who doesn't know someone who has been affected by an opioid related overdose myself i i like i said before there has been at least a dozen deaths anybody. in just my graduating class i'm but not sure i know you anybody. don't know any but do you know other people other than me that other you than know. you, not a ton, no. I don't, a How about you, maybe. Brendan? Have you, do you know people that have died from opioid overdoses? Or um, people who have brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, cousins? From... The, in your personal within life. Within my own family, several. From, with, from friends and people I went to high school with, even, it's just as many. Yeah. Like, I just had not passed away last and year I, from an accidental overdose. Right. Yeah. I this actually this last week, I think it was the twelfth person from my graduating class who this woman is the same age as me and has children at, that now have to grow up without a mother because of this affliction. And it yeah. the the biggest thing I think that all of us 
probably learned from all of our various sources of, re- of research is that this is not an epidemic that is self-inflicted, but it is a disease. And it, yeah. it should be treated as such. Would you guys both agree? It should be looked at as a, as a disease. The stigma needs to go because the stigma is what still today, in my opinion, preventing people from seeking help. Absolutely. Steve, if this were any other affliction, if it killed 64,000 people in a year, if it was a war that killed 64,000 people in one year, what would what do you think the reaction would be? If it were any other sort of affliction, if it were cancer, if it were any, anything. Well, cancer, people kind of come numb to it. War usually gathers sympathy for that sort of loss. You know, you could say World War II because that would probably be a yearly total considering how many were lost and the, the amount of time we were actually involved. Yeah, I think there's a, it's a much more sympathetic outlook. You know, cancer gets a sympathetic outlook, even though people are sort of numb to it. Same with AIDS. Um, DUI is probably the only one, or people that are lost to drunk driving is another one that is has a weird stigma around it. It's not as bad necessarily for the person who died. But there's a little bit of a stigma around that, especially Mm -hmm. if it's like a DUI that kills the driver. And it's the same idea, you know, alcoholism is not viewed as a disease because it's not viewed as an addiction, whereas mostly we've come to accept it as that. And if that's the case, if we're accepting alcoholism as a disease, then these people should be treated in the same fashion, mm-hmm. that it's a disease or at least should be treated that way. Well, Is it self-inflicted or not is almost irrelevant because if it's a disease, people still feel bad when you get cancer even if you smoke three packs of cigarettes a day. That's self-inflicted disease right. in a way. If you but you still feel bad for these people, so why don't you feel bad for the people that are addicted when it's the, it's the same kind of concept It's just because it's, it's cause heroin is a dirty word? Is it because you don't understand what it is? Is that why? Is it not as popular as what cigarettes used to be? Is that why? Because it's the same concept. You know, mm-hmm. people used to smoke four packs a day and die of cancer all the time. People who felt sympathy, and though it's self-inflicted. Mm. So, and, and the same argument could be th- well, made Well, by for... wording, it's self-inflicted. Mm-hmm. It's not that you would well, attack the same, them necessarily the, argument could the way be that you would for... attack them for this. Well, and the, it, it could be made for the armed forces, too. And I know we, ha- we as a society, well, have now, the utmost respect for our arms. But even in World War II, say... But that was a, that was a big draft. Okay. You, that's, but... There's a difference there. There is, the but draft. so if you say you weren't drafted and you signed up to be in the military, would people have said, well, he signed up, that's what he was there for? Or would they say, I'm so sorry that you lost your son, your daughter, your your friend, your your husband? They would have said those things. And we do say those things. The only one that they don't do that for is Vietnam. And that's because it was a not popular war. Right. And so maybe that would be the only thing close but not for any not for our current wars they would not say that they no I would think hailed as a hero and they should be hailed as a hero I'm not saying that they shouldn't I'm just saying and nor do I think necessarily that drug addicts should be there I don't think drug addicts should necessarily be hailed as heroes but if if it's recognized if we call one thing a self-inflicted wound and the other thing a act of heroism then there is a the end result is the same that they have died and that they are no longer part of their but their family there is a bit of a difference there is of course but one is a selfless act 
Whereas one, one is, you consider yes. a selfish act, depending on your view so. of it. It depends on your view of it. It, te- it depends on but the person. But one is technically in service of country, and the other is in service of yourself. It, it is in service of yourself to a point. Because <clears throat> well, once into the, the addiction disease, takes yes. over, it is no longer in service of yourself. And one of these um, articles pointed that out. Who would choose to right. lose every job? Who would no, choose to lose friends and family? Who would choose... To I don't think that they would. No, I don't think that they would if they could truly the determine. So it at one works, point, though. so at some point, when it, the it becomes an addiction, and and we, if we as a society, well, when, you, when you can stop equate addiction yeah. with disease, then we can move forward. When it completely controls right. your every action, is when it stops becoming. Right. So a, a right. thing. the best way to actually look at this is through the science that I do have an understanding of, which. Is honestly, it's when you take these drugs, it affects the dope, like yeah, the dopamine, your dopamine in your brain, and our bodies react to this stuff like mm. all the time, and it reacts to this stuff. This the dopamine is triggered by a lot of stuff. Like we get the same hit of dopamine from sex, from sugar, from alcohol, from Likes drugs. Likes on Facebook. Likes on Facebook, <laughs> Instagrams. When you see that notification, you get a little like a shot of dopamine in, so, from your brain. So right. it's and that is exactly what today these big pharma painkiller producing companies are doing. They're trying to trigger that dopamine to make it well, more addictive I, to make it to make it so that you want more you're going to go to your doctor for more mm-hmm. your doctor like and really twist their arm mm-hmm. to ex- prescribe you more and if you can't get it from that doctor, you're going to go to a new doctor. And if that doctor won't give it to you, you'll find a new doctor. And unfortunately, eventually that stuff catches up yeah, to you because the way technology is working to get yeah. today, then you turn to heroin and then... But so I don't... I mean, that, the, that's just not... And, well, and to speak to the chemistry level of things... Well, the chemistry level is one thing, but the, Entire different parts of your brain. Not the big only pharma the dopamine, conspiracy is a little too far. But there are it's receptors not, in the brain that it, it is. It affects. Because there's not, enough, there's not enough people that come down to that. Uh, if you did... If you... 64... No, no, I'm, I mean, we're we not do going the down research there. and debate it. What, but what, but yeah, because it's not the way that it's going to happen. Of, uh, for the emphasis of time, we can respectfully disagree on this. Because but. I think that's absurd. Well, okay, just to clarify the Dopamine idea. is, the dopamine and all that stuff that you talked about, the chemistry is true, and that's fine. Yes. Because that's what we all do. That's what people jump out of airplanes for. That's what you drive your motorcycle at 130 miles an hour for. Mm. That's what you go down to, you know, you yeah, go down to the no bar idea. and get hammered for. That's what, But it's all of it. It's all, right. that stuff is the real, that's why people do this. That's another reason why people join the military sometimes. Is usually the hit you want. Right. But you want to, I, I, there's too many deaths to sit there and start blaming Big Pharma for everything because it's not all Big Pharma. No, I would. Say and Big Pharma didn't exist when a lot of these drugs were. I wouldn't say becoming Big Pharma as popular. No, to it's not for to, all of it, it's but not to blame I think for the start, but it's blame. It's to be blamed for what it is today. I nah, I, I don't think opposite. you can. Nah, I don't I think you can do that. I would say you can't do that at all. I would. I would say that dopamine. That dopamine. That Big Pharma. The, the the opioid the legal prescription opioid I mean right in this article it says forty five percent forty five percent are attributed to fentanyl and only twenty three percent are due to fatal overdoses of prescription drugs right and so, there's no way you're going you can't really no but the, it, you can't make just a logical it, jump there it is there is a logical jump not necessarily I don't know about the chemistry but there no is no you talk about the jump, big pharma they used to call in it, when it was when it was opium dens they called it chasing the drag yeah, I know. And you you try you chase that high, you yep. chase that first high that you ever got. Yep. 
and you don't get it. And so you try the harder and the harder and the harder. And one of my some of the people that I knew that... that I grew up with in middle school, one in the past two years, he he conquered his addiction and then said, "Fuck it." And did, as far as I understand it, it was straight fentanyl. Right. And he knew it. Yeah. Well, yeah, because Because he wanted to go out on that high. But he died. Well, yeah. And... It's pretty common. It is. And it's too too common. I mean, the way you look at it, too, is this... people, it's too common. The thing that really bothers me about it is you just don't see it. I mean, it took me reading on the internet to find out 65 people, 65,000 people died last year from it. 65, like, why is that not on the news? Why is that not a major headline on 60 Minutes on some it sort of platform? 60 Minutes did uh, one entire episode. Okay. I don't know if they actually, I don't know if they did an entire episode, but they did dedicate a good portion of one episode towards it uh, a while ago, maybe last winter, 2017. Okay. All right. I mean, I just you just uh, don't see enough but, of it. I don't no, think. No, because like I think it's like I said earlier, you don't really hear about opioids and addiction and all that stuff unless it somehow affects kids in a major way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or if it's a slow news day. Yeah. So and I think we all know like we have not had a slow news day in a while. I think that's true. About a year. Dum dum in the Oval Office <laughs> keeps fucking <laughs> fucking up, and uh, he says shit. God. Wants to arm teachers with guns, which is the dumbest fucking idea. Yeah, he's out of control. And so, like, you're not going to hear this stuff on no, and his CNN idiot ass. or MSNBC or even Fox News, anything like that. And he wants but to nominate that guy. Even our local Tom Marino. That's the guy. Yeah, Tom Marino. Marino. He's nominated so many people. Like, who, why bother learning their names? They're not going to get it. Nah. Well, no, no, that's the guy you were talking about earlier with the drugs are. That he's, was him. You know he's nominated a few people. Right. There's like another Tom Wynerth. Oh, okay. Wynerth. Something like that. But even our local news. So like your local NBC affiliate, Fox News affiliate, ABC affiliate. They don't really cover that stuff unless it's a slow fucking news day. Because they have to cover Donald Trump just like everybody else. Then they're going to cover, like for us, they're going to cover the Patriots. They're going to cover the Red Sox. They're going to cover the uh, the Bruins. Right. They're going to cover the weather. They're going to cover traffic at 4.30 fucking morning. You know how many people are driving on that road? Three fucking people. And they still find each other and hit each other. Yep. Fucking assholes. And then yep. they fuck it up for the entire day. Yep. It's always on Route 1. Yeah, it is always on Route 1. Or 93 somehow. Yep. Anyway, back to the whole point. Like, you're not going to hear about drug abuse and all that stuff. And I wish I actually, now that I'm talking about it, I wish I did more research into this. Why do we whitewash, not whitewash, why do we wash over this topic? Why are we not paying attention to it? Why are we not talking about it as much as it should be? Is it because our world is so fucked up today that we we have so much that we're just like, I don't fucking know you deal with it. Pass the hot potato. <laughs> like, I don't know. They don't cover it enough. Yeah. And then the other one is... Maybe I'm fucking wrong, but I, I watch the news and I read the news. So every morning I read the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And then I read the Washington Post if, I have, if they have any interesting articles and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then throughout the day, watch, usually in the morning after I read the paper, I'll watch CNN. Then I move on over to MSNBC, watch the Young Turks, and then... I don't watch. I don't bother wasting time with Fox News. Fox News. If you guys have heard episode one, you know why. 
But like, I will watch Fox News if there's nobody big fucking says news. anything, and even my the yeah, local affiliates don't say anything about this topic. They mm-hmm. don't talk about this stuff. Is it because it's a dirty word? I think it's because it's not sexy. Yeah. Okay. How's okay? Yeah, no, I... So, I did a little more digging, and... Uh-huh. Mm. Uh, Purdue executive to Congress in 2001, talking about hydrocodone and oxycodone. Addiction is rare in the pain patient who is properly managed. That last line, though, is damning. It's putting the blame on the doctor. Right. And oh, with many doctors... The is properly managed. Yep. What fucking doctor do you know has time it's not about the time it's no it, it is it's not to about the time to check back in with the patient what, but it's what? not necessarily the time it's it's what brendan said earlier okay. it's you can't tell a person that they don't have pain that's really what it comes because if brendan comes into the office mm. because he's had a serious injury and the doctor knows he's had a serious injury so like let's say brendan slipped four discs in his back and he prescribes him perks mm. how is he supposed to know without fully giving him an examination and even then there's some sort of nerve damage that could happen. How is he supposed to know that he's not actually in high sorts of pain? Yeah. It's like oh. he said, it's it's very difficult. You're right. And this and is why I said in the military, they, they are very stringent about trying to walk you down the, the, the level of narcotic in your painkiller because this is why. They don't want you to be a walking clinic when you go out. But This is my personal anecdote. In the last year, I've been to the emergency two times. Once was for a severely sprained ankle. Right. And the second time was for uh, two puncture wounds. Neither time did they prescribe me any version of any opioid opiate at all and And i know and it was the same hospital different doctors but they did not give me the good stuff as as i may have called it at the time because their policy dictated that they avoid it at all costs yeah and they may have saved me from an addiction i don't i i just took what they gave me i didn't i didn't actually i didn't fight for them to like give me the yeah, fucking morphine. No, I I took what they said as this is what they think is the best I should do, and they move forward from that. So I do think, to some extent, there may be the beginnings of a trend of doctors to mitigate this problem, which is, again, if we're looking at history, there was different commissions and different groups that were, that pressured the medical, people in the medical field to not push opioids. And then in the 90s, 80s and 90s, but especially the 90s, they pushed the opioids to say, no, they're not addictive. And then within the last five to ten years, they've had a realization as a community, as a medical community, to not push those things. And I do know that a large percentage of opioid-related deaths in our country, of those 64,000, did start with prescription opioids. So... Well, and one of the things that I did want to bring up, too, is that in the early 2000s, 2000 to 2009, the standards for pain management changed, which incorporated what they called the fifth vital sign, which is pain. Yes. And how do you measure that? And one of the things that they did was to set the scale. We've all seen that scale. I know. And at a certain level, you were recommended to prescribe opioids for that level of pain. Right. And from there, so this statistic that I have, the misuse and abuse of prescription painkillers was responsible for more than 730,000 emergency department visits in 2009. 
Yep. A number that nearly doubled in just five years. Yeah. So those statistics are staggering. And if you think about how many people did use opioid prescription pills from those 730,000 visits, 64,000 died. If we think uh, in the last year, say that they started in, say, two, uh, 2009, that number is smaller, but it's not ignorable. No, right. It's not excusable. No. It's not okay. We, as a society had a war against, we've got the quote-unquote war against drugs. We've got uh, the 1980s and 90s talking about HIV and AIDS. We have a protest back to the 60s and 70s about the Vietnam War. We, We have so many social movements against these different things that are affecting our society and it hasn't happened yet for opioids and it is a huge problem i for one and i think that you two both would like to be part of a solution for this that is very much affecting our generation yeah it's affecting our people that are our age the our our age people who are our age's children right and and our parents you know our parents are either our parents generation are either losing children or they are addicted themselves and dying themselves. It is the great equalizer. It does not care if you're rich, poor, white, black. It it doesn't care. It will take your life. There are two ways out of addiction. There is treatment and there is death. And that's it. For opioid, I should say. And we, as a society, should be focusing on that treatment. And not only the treatment for the the benefit of the addicts, but for the tre- the betterment of our in- entire society, we will benefit so much from this. Yeah. From from recognizing this as a disease and treating it as so. Right. And so to wrap up the episode, I think the biggest the biggest takeaway that I think we can make from this is that there needs to be more and better educated media involvement. There also needs to be a better education of these type of drugs and the dangers of them put out to the general populace. There needs to be more regulation on them generally. I think actually the overall takeaway from the episode should be a greater sense of empathy Mm. to the people that suffer from this. Let's first start off by getting rid of that stigma that addicts are lesser people. Mm. They're people struggling and they need help. Right. They should not be looked down upon. They should not be treated as the lesser. They should not be be ashamed of asking for help. There's no shame in asking for help. Like help is just a minor step in reality. It's it's the it's the smallest but largest step at the same yes, time. Yes, exactly. Because it is the smallest but the scariest step to take. Mm-hmm. And we want to be part of this movement of people to support addicts to say you can get help. Yep. We are not qualified to be that help, but we are qualified to say as other human beings, we care about you. We want you to be better. For all the reasons that we talked about in this episode. And we we as a generation should be the ones to encourage it. Yes. And support it. Yes. And I, I think that's the perfect end note for the for the episode. Sure. So let me just thank you guys for listening to the episode. Uh, tune in again. Next time, we're going very uplifting by talking about the Holocaust in Poland and all the bullshit going on in there. Oh, so yeah. So this is Brendan, Steve... And Amy for today on the Opioid Crisis. Have a good night, everybody. Hey, guys. This is Amy from the Angry Historians. And Brendan. And Brendan. Fuck it. Why not? Follow us on Twitter at AngryHistorians1, on Instagram at TheAngryHistorians, and on Facebook at 
facebook.com slash angry historians. We want your questions, your comments, your insults, your jokes, and your ideas for future episodes. So we can tell you to go fuck yourself. Mm, okay. And or we not, will be uh, so for for future reference we are be going to be posting our responses to your insults, jokes, ideas for future episodes, questions and comments individually on the Patreon page at patreon.com slash theangryhistorians. Click the link that says become a patron and help us fund our work here. And we will be posting those responses only to the Patreon page where we will be telling you to go fuck yourself, etc. Or we will be actually answering your questions slash comments. So tune in and like help Google us out. Water. Also, also, if you want to just follow our own daily lives, I'm the only one here who's active on social media. So follow me on Twitter I'm at Brendan underscore Coogan. Uh-huh. And also the same thing is for Instagram. If you want to know just the, the inner workings of an angry ginger gorilla, come <laughs> at me, bro. Come at me, bro. <laughs>